But unto them that are contentious, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Gentile. The Portion of the Wicked by Jonathan Edwards It is the drift of the Apostle in the three first chapters of this epistle to show that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin, and therefore cannot be justified by works of law, but only by faith in Christ. In the, in the first chapter he had shown that the Gentiles were under sin, and this he shows that the Jews also are under sin. And that, however severe they were in their censures upon the Gentiles, yet they themselves did the same things, for which the apostle very much blames them. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. And he warns them not to go on in such a way, by forewarning them of the misery to which they will expose themselves by it, and by giving them to understand, that instead of their misery being less than that of the Gentiles, it would be the greater, for God's distinguishing goodness to them above the Gentiles. The Jews thought that they should be exempted from future wrath, because God had chosen them to be his peculiar people. But the apostle informs them that there should be indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish, to every soul of man, not only to the Gentiles, but to every soul, and to the Jews first and chiefly, when they did evil, because their sins were more aggravated. In the text we find, number one, a description of wicked men, in which may be observed those qualifications of wicked men which have the nature of a cause, and those which have the nature of an effect. Those qualifications of wicked men here mentioned that have the nature of a cause are their being contentious, and not obeying the truth, but obeying unrighteousness. By their being contentious is meant their being contentious against the truth, their quarreling with the gospel, their finding fault with us declarations and offers. Unbelievers find many things in the ways of God at which they stumble and by which they are offended. They are always quarreling and finding fault with one thing or another, whereby they are kept from believing the truth and yielding to it. Christ is to them a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They do not obey the truth, that is, they do not yield to it. They do not receive it with faith. That yielding to the truth and embracing it, which there is in saving faith, is called obeying in Scripture, Romans 6:17. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Hebrews 5, 9, And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Romans 1, 5, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience 
to the faith among all nations for his name. But they obey unrighteousness instead of yielding to the gospel. They are under the power and dominion of sin and are slaves to their lusts and corruptions. It is in those qualifications of wicked men that their wickedness radically consists, their unbelief and opposition to the truth, and their slavish subjection to lust are the foundation of all wickedness. Those qualifications of wicked men which have the nature of an effect are their doing evil. This is the least of their opposition against the gospel and of their slavish subjection to their lusts, that they do evil. Those wicked principles of the foundation and their wicked practice, the superstructure. Those were the root, and this is the fruit. Number two, the punishment of wicked men, in which may be also noticed the cause and the effect. Though things mentioned in their punishment that have the nature of a cause are indignation and wrath, i.e., the indignation and wrath of God. It is the anger of God that will render wicked men miserable. They will be the subjects of divine wrath, and hence will arise their whole punishment. Though things in their punishment that have the nature of an effect are tribulation and anguish, indignation and wrath in God will work extreme sorrow, trouble, and anguish of heart in them. Doctrine, indignation, wrath, misery, and anguish of soul are the portion that God has allotted to wicked men. Every one of mankind must have the portion that belongs to him. God allots to each one his portion, and the portion of the wicked is nothing but wrath and distress and anguish of soul. Though they may enjoy a few empty and vain pleasures and delights for a few days while they stay in this world, yet that which is allotted to them by the possessor and governor of all things to be their portion is only indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish. This is not the portion that wicked men choose. The portion that they choose is worldly happiness. Yet it is a portion that God carves out for them. It is a portion that they, in effect, choose for themselves. For they choose those things that naturally and necessarily lead to it. And those, they are plainly told, times without number, will issue in it. Proverbs 8.36 But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. But whether they choose it or not, this will and must be the portion to all eternity of all who live and die, wicked men. Indignation and wrath shall pursue them as long as they live in this world, shall drive them out of the world, and shall follow them into another world, and their wrath and misery shall abide upon them throughout eternity. The method that I shall take in treating this subject is to describe the wrath and misery of which wicked men shall be the subjects, both here and hereafter in the successive parts and periods of it, according to the order of time. Section 1. I shall describe the wrath that often pursues wicked men in this life. Indignation and wrath often begin with them here first.
God oftentimes in wrath leaves them to themselves. They are left in their sins and left to undo themselves and work out their own ruin. He lets them alone in sin. Hosea 4.17 Ephraim is joined to his idols. Let him alone. He often leaves them to go great lengths in sin and does not afford them that restraining grace that he does to others. He leaves them to their own blindness so that they are always ignorant of God and Christ and of the things that belong to their peace. They are sometimes left to hardness of heart to be stupid and senseless, so that nothing will ever thoroughly awake them. They are left to their own heart's lusts to continue in some wicked practices all their days. Some are left to their covetousness, some to drunkenness, some to uncleanness, some to a proud, contentious, and envious spirit, and some to a spirit of finding fault and quarreling with God. God leaves them to their folly to act exceedingly foolishly, to delay and put off the concerns of their souls from time to time, never to think the present time the best, but always to keep it at a distance, and foolishly to continue flattering themselves with hopes of long life, and to put far away the evil day, and to bless themselves in their hearts and say, I shall have peace, so I add drunkenness to thirst. Some are so left that they are miserably hardened and senseless, when others all around them are awakened and greatly concerned and inquire what they shall do to be saved. Sometimes God leaves men to a fatal backsliding for a misimprovement of the strivings of his spirit. They are let alone to backslide perpetually. Dreadful is the life and condition of those who are thus left of God. We have instances of the misery of such in God's holy word, particularly of Saul and Judas. Such are sometimes very much left to the power of Satan to tempt them, to hurry them on in wicked courses, and exceedingly to aggravate their own guilt and misery. Number 2. Indignation and wrath are sometimes exercised towards them in this world by their being cursed in all that concerns them. They have this curse of God following them in everything. They are cursed in all their enjoyments. If they are in prosperity, it is cursed to them. If they possess riches, if they have honor, if they enjoy pleasure, there is a curse of God that attends it. Psalm 92.7 When the wicked spring as the grass, and when all the workers of iniquity do flourish, it is that they may be destroyed forever. There is a curse of God that attends their ordinary food. Every morsel of bread which they eat, and every drop of water which they drink. Psalm 69.22 Let their table become a snare before them, and that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. They are cursed in all their employments, and whatsoever they put their hands to, when they go into the field to labor, or at work at their respective trades, Deuteronomy 28.16. Cursed shall thou be in the city, and cursed shall thou be in the field. 
The curse of God remains in the houses where they dwell, and brimstone is scattered in their habitations. Job 18.15 The curse of God attends them in the afflictions which they meet with, whereas the afflictions that good men meet with are fatherly corrections and are sent in mercy. The afflictions which wicked men meet with are in wrath and come from God as an enemy, and are the foretaste of their everlasting punishment. The curse of God attends them also in their spiritual enjoyments and opportunities, and it would have been better for them to not have been born in a land of light. Their having the Bible and the Sabbath is only to aggravate their guilt and misery. The word of God when preached to them is a savor of death unto death. Better would it be for them if Christ had never come into the world, if there had never been any offer of a Savior. Life itself is a curse to them. They live only to fill up the measure of their sins. What they seek in all the enjoyments and employments and concerns of life is their own happiness, but they never obtain it. They never obtain any true comfort. All the comforts which they have are worthless and unsatisfying. If they lived in hundred years with never so much of the world in their possession, their life is all filled up with vanity. All that they have is vanity of vanities. They find no true rest for their souls. They do but feed on the east wind. They have no real contentment. Whatever outward pleasures they may have, their souls are starving. They have no true peace of conscience. They have nothing of the favor of God. Whatever they do, they live in vain and to no purpose. They are useless in the creation of God. They do not answer the end of their being. They live without God, and have not the presence of God, nor any communion with Him. But on the contrary, all that they have and all that they do does but contribute to their own misery, and render their future and everlasting state the more dreadful. The best of wicked men live but miserable and wretched lives with all their prosperity. Their lives are more undesirable, and whatever they have, the wrath of God abides upon them. Number 3. After a time they must die. Ecclesiastes 9.3. This is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all. Yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Death is a far different thing when it befalls wicked men from what it is when it befalls good men. To the wicked it is an execution of the curse of the law and of the wrath of God. When a wicked man dies, God cuts him off in wrath. He is taken away as by a tempest of wrath. He is driven away in his wickedness. Proverbs 14.32 The wicked is driven away in his wickedness, but the righteous hath hope in his death. Job 18, verse 18. He shall be driven from light into darkness and chased out of the world. Job 27, 21. The east wind carrieth him away, and he departeth, and as a storm hurleth him out of his place.
The wicked men, while they live, may live in worldly prosperity, yet they cannot live here always, but they must die. The place that knoweth him shall know him no more, and the eye that has seen him shall see him no more in the land of the living. Their bounds are unchangeably set, and when they are come to those bounds, they must go, and must leave all their worldly good things. If they have lived in outward glory, their glory shall not descend after them. They get nothing while they live that they can carry away, Ecclesiastes 5.15. As it came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return, to go as he came and shall take nothing of his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. He must leave all his substance to others. If, if they are at ease in quietness, death will put an end to their quietness, will spoil all their carnal mirth, and will strip them of all their glory. As they came naked into the world, so naked must they return and go as they came. If they have laid up much goods for many years, if they have laid up in stores as they hope for great comfort and pleasure, death will cut them off from all. Luke 12.16 And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This I will do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? If they have many designs and projects in their breasts for promoting their outward prosperity and worldly advantage, when death comes it cuts all off at one blow. Psalm 46.4 His breath goeth forth, he returneth to his earth. In that very day his thoughts perish. And so whatever diligence they have had in seeking their salvation, death will disappoint all such diligence. It will not wait for them to accomplish their designs and fulfill their schemes. If they have pleased and pampered and adorned their bodies, death will spoil all their pleasures and their glory. It will change their countenance to a pale and ghastly aspect. Instead of their gay apparel and beautiful ornaments, they shall have only a winding sheet. Their house must be the dark and silent grave, and that body which they have deified shall turn to loathsome rottenness, shall be eaten of worms and turned to dust. Some wicked men die in youth. Wrath pursues them and soon overtakes them. They are not suffered to live out half their days. Job 36.14 They die in youth and their life is among the unclean. Psalm 55.23 But thou, O God, shall bring them down into the pit of destruction. Bloody and deceitful men shall not live out half their days. They are sometimes overtaken in the very midst of their sin and vanity, and death puts a sudden end to all their youthful pleasures.
They're often stopped in the midst of a career in sin, and then if their hearts cleave ever so fast to those things, they must be rent from them. They have no other good but outward good, but then they must eternally forsake it. They must close their eyes forever on all that has been dear and pleasant to them here. Number four. Wicked men are oftentimes the subjects of much tribulation and anguish of heart on their deathbeds. Sometimes the pains of body are very extreme and dreadful, and what they endure in those agonies and struggles for life, after they are past speaking, and when body and soul are rending asunder, none can know. Hezekiah had an awful sense of it. He compares it to a lion's breaking all his bones. Isaiah 38, 12, and 13. Mine age is departed and is removed from me as a shepherd's tent. I have cut off as a weaver my life. He will cut me off with pining sickness. From day even to night wilt thou make an end of me. I reckon till morning that... As a lion, so will he break all my bones. From day even to night wilt thou make an end of me. But this is but little to what is sometimes undergone by wicked men in their souls when they are on their deathbeds. Death appears sometimes with an exceedingly terrible aspect to them. When it comes and stares them in the face, they cannot bear to behold it. It is always so. If wicked men have notice of the approach of death and have reason and conscience in exercise and are not either stupid or distracted, when this king of terrors comes to show himself to them, and they are called forth to meet him. Oh, how do they dread the conflict, but meet him they must. There is no man that hath power over the spirit to retain the spirit, neither hath he power in the day of death, and there is no discharge in that war, neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. Death comes to them with all his dreadful armor, and a sting not taken away, and it is enough to fill their souls with torment that cannot be expressed. It is an awful thing for a person to be lying on a sick bed, to be given over by physicians, to have friends stand weeping round the bed as expecting a part with him, and in such circumstances as those to have no hope, to be without an interest in Christ, to have the guilt of his sins lying on his soul, to be going out of the world without his peace being made with God, to to stand before his holy judgment seat in all his sins without anything to plead or answer, to see the only opportunity to prepare for eternity coming immediately to an end, after which there shall be no more time of probation, but his case will be unutterably fixed, 
and there never will be another offer of a savior for the soul to come just to the very edge of the boundless gulf of eternity and insensibly to launch forth into it without any god or savior to take care of it to be brought to the edge of the precipice and to see himself falling down into the lake of fire and brimstone and to feel that he has no power to stop himself who can tell the shrinkings and misgivings of heart in such a case how does he endeavor to hang back but yet he must go on it is in vain to wish for further opportunity Oh, how happy does he think those that stand about him who may yet live may have their lives continued longer when he must go immediately into an endless eternity. How does he wish it might be with him as with those who have a longer time to prepare for their trial? But it must not be so. Death sent on purpose to summon him, will give him no release, nor respite. He must go before the holy judgment seat of God, as he is, to have his everlasting state determined according to his works. To such persons, how differently do things appear from what they did in the time of health? And when they looked at death, is at a distance... How, how differently does sin look to them now, those sins which they used to make light of? How dreadful is it now to look back and consider how they have spent their time, how foolish they have been, how they have gratified and indulged their lusts, and lived in ways of wickedness, how careless they have been, and how they have neglected their opportunities and advantages, how they have refused to hearken to counsel and have not repented in spite of all the warnings they were given Proverbs 5 11 to 13 and thou born at the last when thy flesh and thy body are consumed and say how have I hated instruction and my heart despised reproof and have not obeyed the voice of my teachers nor inclined mine ear to them that instructed me how differently does the world appear to them now they used to set much by it and have their hearts taken up with it. But what does it avail them now? How insignificant are all their riches, Proverbs 11.4. Riches profit not in a day of wrath, but righteousness delivereth from death. What different thoughts are they now of God and of his wrath? They used to make light of the wrath of God, but how terrible does it now appear how does their heart shrink at the thoughts of appearing before such a god how different are their thoughts of time and now time appears precious and oh what would they not give for a little more time such have in such circumstances been brought to cry out oh a thousand worlds for an hour for a moment and how differently does eternity now appear now it is awful indeed some have been brought on a deathbed to cry out 
Oh, that word eternity, eternity, eternity. What a dismal gulf does it appear to them when they come to the very brink. They often at such times cry for mercy and cry in vain. God called and they would not hear. They said it not his counsels and would none of his reproofs. Now also he laughs at their calamity and mocks when their fear cometh. They beseech others to pray for them. They send for ministers, but all often fails them. They draw nearer and nearer to death, and eternity comes more and more immediately in view. And who can express their horror when they feel themselves clasped in the cold arms of death, when their breath fails more and more and their eyes begin to be fixed and grow? Oh, dim, that which is in felt by them cannot be told nor conceived. Some wicked men have much of the horror and despair of hell in their last sickness. Ecclesiastes 5.17 All his days also he eateth in darkness, and he hath much sorrow and wrath with his sickness. Section 2 I shall describe the wrath that attends wicked men hereafter first. The soul, when it is separated from the body, shall be cast down into hell. There is without doubt a particular judgment by which every man is to be tried at death, beside the general judgment. For the soul, as soon as it departs from the body, appears before God to be judged. Ecclesiastes 12. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. That is, to be judged and disposed of by him. Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. But this particular judgment is probably no such a solemn transaction as that which will be at the day of judgment. The soul must appear before God, but not in the manner that men shall appear at the end of the world. The souls of wicked men shall not go to heaven to appear before God, neither shall Christ descend from heaven for the soul to appear before him. Neither is it to be supposed that the soul shall be carried to any place where there is some special symbol of the divine presence in order to be judged. But as God is everywhere present, so the soul shall be made immediately sensible of its presence. Souls in a separate state shall be sensible of the presence of God and of his operations in another manner than we now are. All separate spirits may be said to be before God. The saints are in his glorious presence, and the wicked in hell are in his dreadful presence. They are said to be tormented in the presence of the Lamb. Revelations 14.10 The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So the soul of a wicked man at its departure from the body will be made immediately sensible that it is before an infinitely holy and dreadful God and his own final judge and will then see how terrible a God he is. 
you will see how holy a God he is, how infinitely he hates sin. You will be sensible of the greatness of God's anger against sin, and how dreadful is his displeasure. Then will he be sensible of the dreadful majesty and power of God, and how fearful a thing it is to fall into his hands. Then the soul shall come naked with all its guilt and all its filthiness, a vile, loathsome, abominable creature, an enemy to God, a rebel against him, with the guilt of all its rebellion and disregard of God's commands and contempt of his authority and slight of the glorious gospel before God as his judge. This will fill the soul with horror and amazement. It is not to be supposed that this judgment will be attended with any voice or any such outward transactions as a judgment at the end of the world, but God shall manifest himself in his strict justice inwardly to the immediate view of the soul and to the sense and apprehension of the conscience. This particular judgment probably will not hinder, but that the soul shall be cast into hell immediately when it goes from the body, as soon as ever the soul departs from the body. The soul shall know what its state and condition are to be to all eternity, and as long as there is life, there is hope. The man while he lived, though his case was exceedingly dreadful, yet had some hope. When he lay dying, there was a possibility of salvation. But when once the union between soul and body is broken, then that moment the case becomes desperate, and there remains no hope, no possibility. On their deathbeds, perhaps they had some hope that God would pity them and hear their cries, or that he would hear the prayers of their pious friends for them. They were ready to lay hold on something which they had at some time met with, some religious affection or some change in their external conduct, and to flatter themselves that they were then converted. They were able able to indulge some degree of hope from the moral lies that they had lived that God would have respect to them and save them. But as soon as ever the soul parts from the body, from that moment the case will be absolutely determined. There will then be an end forever to all hope. To everything that men hang upon in this life, the soul then shall know certainly that it is to be miserable to all eternity without any remedy. It shall see that God is its enemy. It shall see its judge closed in his wrath and vengeance. Then, it, then its misery will begin. It will at that moment be swallowed up in despair. The great gulf will be fixed between it and happiness. The door of mercy will be forever shut up. The irrevocable sentence will be passed. Then shall the wicked know what is before them. Before the soul was in distress for fear how it would be, but now all his fear shall come upon it. It shall come upon it as a mighty flood, and there will be no escaping. The soul was full of amazement before through fear, but now who can conceive the amazement that feels at that moment when all hope is cut off and it knows that there never will be any difference? When a good man dies, his soul is conducted by holy angels to heaven. Luke 16.22
And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. So we may well suppose that when a wicked man dies, his soul is seized by wicked angels, that they are round his bed ready to seize the miserable soul as soon as it is parted from the body. And with what fierceness and fury do those cruel spirits fly upon their prey, and the soul shall be left in their hands. There shall be no good angels to guard and defend it. God will take no merciful care of it. There is nothing to help it against those cruel spirits that shall lay hold of it to carry it to hell, there to torment it forever. God will leave it wholly in their hands and will give it up to their possession when it comes to die, and it shall be carried down into hell to the abode of devils and damned spirits. If the fear of hell on a deathbed sometimes fills the wicked with amazement, how will they be overwhelmed when they feel its torments, when they shall find them not only as great, but far greater than their fears? They shall find them far beyond what they could conceive of before they felt them, for none knows the power of God's anger but they that experience it. Psalm 90 verse 11 Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. Departed spirits of wicked men are doubtless carried to some particular place in the universe which God has prepared to be the receptacle of his wicked, rebellious, and miserable subjects. A place where God's avenging justice shall be glorified. A place built to be the prison where devils and wicked men are reserved till the day of judgment. Number 2. Here the souls of wicked men shall suffer extreme and amazing misery in a separate state until the resurrection. This misery is not indeed their full punishment, nor is the happiness of the saints before the day of judgment their full happiness. It is with the souls of wicked men as it is with devils. Though the devils suffer extreme torment now, yet they do not suffer their complete punishment. And therefore it is said that they are cast down to hell and bound in chains, Second Peter 2, 4. God spared not the angels that sin, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, Jude 6. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. They are reserved in the state therein. And for what are they reserved but for a greater degree of punishment? And therefore they are said to tremble for fear. James 2.19 Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Hence, when Christ was on earth, the devils were greatly afraid that Christ was come to torment them. Matthew 8.29 And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? Mark 5.7 And cried with a loud voice and said, 
What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. But yet they are there in extreme and inconceivable misery. They are there deprived of all good. They have no rest nor comfort, and they are subject to the wrath of God. God there executes wrath on them without mercy, and they are swallowed up in wrath. Luke 16.24 And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Here we are told that when the rich man died, he lift up his eyes being in torment, and he tells Abraham that he is tormented in a flame. And it seems that the flame was not only about him, but in him. He therefore asks for a drop of water to cool his tongue. This doubtless is to represent to us that they are full of the wrath of God as it were, with fire, and they shall there be tormented in the midst of devils and damned spirits, and they shall have an expressible torment from their own consciences. God's wrath is a fire that never shall be quenched, and conscience is a worm that never dies. How much do men suffer from horror of conscience sometimes in this world, but how much more? In hell, what bitter and tormenting reflections will they have concerning the folly they have been guilty of in their lives, and so neglecting their souls when they had such an opportunity for repentance that they went on so foolishly to treasure up wrath against the day of wrath, to add to the record of their sins from day to day, to make their misery yet greater and greater, how they have kindled the fires of hell for themselves and spent their lives and gathering the fuel, they will not be able to help revolving such thoughts in their minds, and how tormenting will they be, and those who go to hell never can escape thence, there they remained in prison till the day of judgments, and their torments remain continually, those wicked men who died many years ago, their souls went to hell, and there they are still. Those who went to hell in former ages of the world have been in hell ever since, all the while suffering torment. They have nothing else to spend their time in there but to suffer torment. They are kept in being for no other purpose, and though they have many companions in hell, yet they are no comfort to them, for there is no friend, no love, no pity, no quietness, no prospect, no hope. Number three, the separate souls of the wicked, besides the present misery that they suffer, shall be in amazing fear of their more full punishment at the day of judgment. Though their punishment and their separate state be exceedingly dreadful, and far more than they can bear, though it be so great as to sink and crush them, yet this is not all. They are reserved for a much greater and more dreadful punishment at the day of judgment. Their torment will then be vastly augmented, and continue in that augmentation to all eternity.
their punishment will be so much greater then that their misery in this separate state is but as an imprisonment before an execution. They, as well as the devils, are bound in chains of darkness to the judgment of the great day. Separate spirits are called spirits in prison, First Peter 3.19, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. And if the imprisonment be so dreadful, how dreadful indeed will be the execution. When we are under any great pain of body at any time, how do we dread the least addition to it? Its continuance is greatly dreaded, much more its increase. How much more will those separate spirits that suffer the torments of hell dread that augmentation and completing of their torment, which there will be at the day of judgment? when what they feel already is vastly more than they can support themselves, when they shall be, as it were, begging for one drop of water to cool their tongues, when they would give ten thousand worlds for the least abatement of their misery. How, how sinking will it be to think that instead of that the day is coming when God shall come forth out of heaven to sentence them to a far more dreadful degree of misery and to continue them under it forever. The experience they have of the dreadfulness of God's wrath convinces them fully how terrible a thing his wrath is. They will therefore be exceedingly afraid of that full wrath which he will execute at the day of judgment. They will have no hope of escaping it. They will know assuredly that it will come. The fear of this makes the devils, those mighty, proud, and stubborn spirits, to tremble. They believe what is threatened, and therefore tremble. If this fear overcomes them, how much more will it overwhelm the souls of wicked men? All hell trembles at the thoughts of the day of judgment. Number 4. When the day of judgment comes, they shall rise to the resurrection of damnation. When that day comes, all mankind that have died from off the face of the earth shall arise, not only the righteous, but also the wicked. Daniel 12.2 And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. 
And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.